Spring Break! Get your hands up! Hold up. Is that... Oh, no. Come on, now. Where are your tees and shorts? Listen, y'all gotta get to Old Navy and get your style in check. There's too much good stuff on sale from just five bucks. Y'all hear me? That means go. Don't make me put on dubstep. Right now at Old Navy, thousands of spring break styles for the whole family are all on sale. Teeth and tanks are just five bucks and shorts from $10. Plus, all women swim is 50% off. Run to Old Navy. Valid 314 and 322. Select styles only in stores only. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. tuning in and we have a very interesting show today. There's been a lot of talk where I've been going around in the blogosphere and such about this episode coming up and about my guest. Today we are going to be talking about Genesis 1 and my guest for that is Dr. John Walton out of Wheaton. Dr. Walton, are you there? I am here. Great to have you aboard the Deeper Waters podcast. Now, before we start talking about the book, Tell my audience a bit about who you are and why they should be listening to what you have to say today. Well, I teach at Wheaton College. I've been here for about 12 years. Before mm-hmm. that, I was at Moody Bible Institute for about 20 years. I did mm-hmm. my doctoral work at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been researching and writing and teaching over the last nearly 40 years, uh, specializing in Genesis, in Hebrew Bible, in the importance of ancient Near Eastern literature, and most recently have been more involved in the Bible and science conversation. For the last seven months, I've been on a worldwide tour talking about this material. I've been in Mm -hmm. 12 countries and in 25 or 30 seminaries, schools, and churches around the country uh, talking about these issues. Okay. Now, the book is called The Lost World of Genesis 1. Now, in most of our dialogues that take place in the church, we've got this debate going on. Is the earth old? Is the earth young? And as soon as that starts, we go straight to Genesis 1 and say, well, let's look at the days of creation. Are those 24-hour days or are those long period of time? Is there a gap in between, etc., etc.? But from what I gather from your book, when you... Uh, see this debate going on, you go to the young earth creationists and the older earth creationists, both of them, and say about their approach to Genesis 1, you're both wrong. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know that I would be so bold as to tell them they were wrong. I would uh, suggest that there's some information that we should consider 
that mm-hmm. could cause us to think differently. Okay. Well, we're useful to going here to say that this is the text that should tell us about the origins of creation and how old the earth is. And your approach is, from what I got from the book, is Genesis 1 isn't meant to answer that question. Uh, that's correct. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, and I do, and I assume many of your listeners do, if we're going to take the Bible so. seriously, yes, then we need to make sure that we understand what claims it is actually making. Right. Um, you know, I I don't want to just make the text do what, what suits me mm-hmm. or what's convenient. I want mm-hmm. to know what the text itself is claiming. And especially if we're going to use that as a filter for thinking about science and claims that science makes. We'd better make mm-hmm. sure we have the filter adjusted correctly and we know what mm-hmm. its claims are. And sometimes that takes uh, some very careful examination. St. Augustine said years ago that n- even a non-Christian can know something about the way of the world. And when we're presenting our gospel to people who are unbelievers, we'd better make sure our facts are as straight as we can or else we're going to laugh at what we have to say, thinking that that is what the scriptures teach when really it's what our interpretation is. Now, that's a paraphrase of what he said, of course, but I'm sure you recognize the quote and agree with it. Uh, Certainly, we always have to differentiate between the text, which has authority, and our interpretations, Mm -hmm. which do not. Mm Mm-hmm. And it seems that for many of us, unfortunately, here in America, and I'm going to be guessing that a lot of my listeners are Americans, but even if they're not, many of them probably come with Western presuppositions that are found in America. We often approach the text as if it was written to us, as if it's speaking in our language, in our terminology and such. And one of the main things I've been huge about in understanding the Bible is trying to realize this is not a Western document, and we can't treat it like a Western document. Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, We know that right off because it's not written in our language. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then we quickly realize that not only that, but it's not written to our culture, and with anticipating the questions or ideas that our culture would have. And so to Mm -hmm. that extent, we have to be careful to read as an ancient document if we're going to read it the way that God inspired the author to write it. Mm-hmm. And your hypothesis in this book largely stems around the idea that in our Western world, after the Enlightenment, we live in a highly scientific climate, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but we can't impose that climate on the Bible and think, since we think scientifically about creation or the universe, then the ancient mindset did the same thing. So let's see what they had to say about it. And when we do that, we kind of assume the Bible is speaking our language, right? Well, it's true. And we go to the Bible with our questions about science and our um, our worldview and uh, focus being science. We're bringing things to the text that uh, simply were not there in the ancient world. Now, mm-hmm. you know, truth is truth, and we're looking for yep. truth in Scripture, uh, but there are many different ways to uh, to come at that truth and to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'd said in some groups before and we were discussing this book also is that 
your view, I think, of Genesis, before we get into it, your view could, in fact, be held by someone who is either a young Earth creationist or an old Earth creationist. You're just saying that the, it, either one of those could hypothetically be right. You just have to look elsewhere for the answer. So, do you think your view could be held by any side? Oh, absolutely. Because after all, my view, I'm just saying that the Bible does not make a claim about mm -hmm. the age of the Earth. Uh, right. You know, if you think the Earth is old for whatever reasons, well, fine, that's not going to contradict mm -hmm. the Bible. If you think the Earth is young for whatever reasons, that's not going to contradict the Bible. You can't contradict the Bible if it's not making a claim. Yeah. Okay, so now let's get into this, the meat of this work. And after the first break, we'll open it up for calls. But if the Bible isn't talking about material origins in Genesis 1, what is it talking about? Well, in the ancient world, and really in lots of different ways, still in our modern world, we're very interested in order. We're interested mm -hmm. in how things are organized. We're interested in how they work. Uh, we're interested in kind of the functioning system. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, when you go into a new job, uh, the first questions you ask are not about the physical plant you're working in and who the architect and contractor were and what materials they used. First questions you ask are, how does this company work? How does it function? Where's my role mm -hmm. in it? And things yep. of that sort. And so in that sense, um, there, there are other questions to ask besides mm -hmm. just kind of what is this made of? And sometimes mm -hmm. those other questions uh, are more important ones. Mm -hmm. So what questions then are being asked in Genesis 1 or ever? What questions are being answered in Genesis 1? Well, Genesis 1, uh, I think, gives us indications. And, of course, this is this, that's the difficult part, you know. But I believe that it gives us indications that it's much more interested in God establishing order. The way that I talk about that is imagine the difference between building a house and making a house your home. Right. The house can be built, and the roof is there. It keeps out the rain. The walls stand. The foundation's strong. The electricity, mm -hmm. the plumbing all work. There they are, but mm -hmm. the house is empty. At that point, it exists as a house, but it does not exist as a home because nobody's living there. At yep. some point when some people move in, they are now making it their home. And you mm -hmm. could then talk to them about the origins of their home, which wouldn't mm -hmm. have to do with the building of the house. It would yeah. have to do with how they made it their home. And now the electricity is working for them, and the roof is working for them, and the plumbing is working for them. Mm -hmm. My understanding of Genesis 1 is that it is not telling the house story, how God built the house, although he did build the house, make no mistake yeah. about it. But the Genesis 1 is not telling the story about how God built the house. It's telling mm -hmm. the story about that house becoming a home. You know, this analogy works. <clears throat> so where my wife and I, the house we're living in right now, my grandmother actually lived in this house for several years before she passed away. And so if one tells us, someone asks about how we got this house, we don't say, well, back in 1948 it was built. We usually start with what happened with my grandmother and go straight there to see how it became our home. That's the kind of thing you're talking about, isn't it? Exactly. You have to figure out where the story should start to answer mm -hmm. the questions the audience wants to know. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have students over my house and they ask me about our place, 
I'm not going to tell them about the architect that designed our house or, or what yeah. kind of plumbing system it has. I'm going to talk mm-hmm. to them about how it works as our home. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of what questions you want to have answered. Mm-hmm. And in your uh, account, you also say creation, the cosmos is in some sense a home as well, but in fact is being made as kind of a home for God to dwell in. Well, and that's the beauty of the analogy of the home. Again, yeah. I, I, in my interpretation, uh, the Genesis 1 is not telling you about the building of the house. It's telling you how it became a home. Now, that has mm-hmm. two parts to it. Uh, God has made it function as a home for us because it, it works for us. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a home. Yeah. He doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. but... So he's made it work for us, but the beauty of it is that it's not just our home, it is his home. Mm-hmm. And in his home, we are honored guests. And in his home, the idea is that we will be relating with him and be in relationship. And so mm-hmm. the home story focuses on how God made it work for us and then the fact that it's really his place and he wants to be here with us. In that mm-hmm. sense, you could talk about um, Genesis 1 in some of the same ways that we talk about John 14. Remember in John 14, the disciples have been told that Jesus is going away. And Jesus Mm -hmm. says, don't worry about it. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so that where I am, you may also be. Uh, That wasn't the first time that happened. God prepared this place for us. And the idea is so that where he is, we may also be. So when I talk about the temple idea, the temple model, sacred space, those kinds of things, order, those all have to do with the idea that this is about God setting up a home, his home, which is functioning on our behalf. Mm -hmm. I heard you talking about this, and my apologies if I get his name on on the Phil Vesher show. One time, which I'm sorry we don't have a buzzer here that you can ring. I wish we did, but we don't. <laughs> but I uh, I heard you talking about how you came to this account. Now, just to have some a bit of teasing here, you uh, came to this conclusion by reading all these pagan manuscripts about creation first, right? No, no, mm-hmm. that's not it. I came to this conclusion reading the Bible. Um, well, I've been reading ancient. Dangerous years. idea, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, boy. What was I thinking? Now, but mm-hmm. uh you know, of course I I have been reading the ancient Near Eastern literature. I I'd be reluctant to call it pagan literature, although certainly yeah. in the ancient Near East the Babylonians and the Syrians were what we would call pagan, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um they they certainly weren't believers in the true God. Mm-hmm. But um but the reason I'm reading it is not because of its uh, good religion or bad religion <clears throat> or good theology or bad yeah. theology. I'm reading it because that literature helps us to understand the ancient world. If we didn't Uh have that literature, we wouldn't be able to understand the ancient world because we could only think in concepts and terms that we have from our modern world. We need some way to help us strip away the things that are modern thinking so we Uh can, can start considering how people thought in the ancient world. So I've read that literature my entire professional life, and I think that it's been of great help to me. But I don't use that literature to tell me how I'm supposed to interpret the Bible. I interpret Mm -hmm. the Bible based on what I find in the text itself. 
Now, every once in a while, what I find in the text itself, I find corresponds to what I also find in Babylonian or Egyptian texts. And mm -hmm. that just says, well, indeed, people did think that way in the ancient world. And even though Israel's different from the Babylonians and the Egyptians in a multitude of ways, there are yeah. some things in which they kind of thought the same way. And if God didn't change how the Israelites thought, they would continue to think the same way as the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians. So that's the value of reading those texts, not to tell us how to interpret the Bible, but to help us to understand the ancient world so that we can understand some things that otherwise would be a mystery to us or that we would inadvertently bring our own modern viewpoint to. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you started talking about that, I remember C.S. Lewis has said before that one of the great dangers in our age is to read only modern books. And he said, in between your reading, you should read old books as well. So your viewpoint will be addressed by someone from another time frame. Exactly. Um, again, the, the Israelites mm -hmm. were part of the ancient world. God was yep. revealing himself to them. And so mm -hmm. he was... Uh, giving them information that differentiated them from the ancient world. But he didn't mm -hmm. change everything that they thought about. I mean, there's lots of things that he didn't give them that we know about today. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't tell them about uh, physiology and anatomy. He didn't tell them about, you know, weather systems and meteorology. Mm -hmm. He didn't tell them that stuff. They thought the same way anybody else in the ancient world thought. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking that some of your critics, and we're going to get more into what your critics say, have said that uh, they get concerned Don't because, because <laughs> yeah, they get concerned because where well, it seems all this is based on all these ancient documents that have been found since then. And when I see that, I kind of think of this parallel because my main area is in the New Testament, and I, I wonder how many of those would say, well, it looks like the writings of someone like say N.T. Wright though. Is, that is way too influenced by the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm kind of mm -hmm. thinking that's the point. The Dead Sea Scrolls give us an idea of how people of a time thought, just like reading ancient literature. Whether it's true or false, it's kind of irrelevant at the start. It gives us an idea of how they thought. Right. That's exactly now, right. Now, it, it, I'm remembering from what you said on your show, what got you to see the light was actually light itself, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, in one sense it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. The the account of day one in Genesis 1, it was mm -hmm. when I was uh, talking about that uh, to a class uh, mm -hmm. that uh, suddenly I saw a different perspective than what I had seen before. So it mm -hmm. was, as I said, it was actually dealing with the biblical text. Tell us what happened there. Well, we were working through the passage, and we had gotten to verse 5, where it says that God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And I asked the simple question, why didn't God call the light light? I mean, why call light day? They're not the same thing. So mm -hmm. something's going on here, and we'd like to know what it is. Now, of course, if you end up with day, then you must be talking about a period of light. And it works very well to say God called the period of light day and the period of darkness he called night. That's just sound interpretation. It makes it makes something that was previously perhaps a little nonsensical now sensible. Now, then mm -hmm. you go back to verse 4, and it says that God separated the light and the darkness. Of course, you can't separate light and darkness because they can't be together. 
Um, darkness is the absence of light, so that doesn't work real well. But we're not talking physics. We're talking ancient world. And mm -hmm. we find that it's, it's much more sensible to talk about God distinguished a period of light from a period of darkness. Mm -hmm. Well, that leads us back to verse 3 where it says that God said, let there be, and light. we usually read, mm -hmm. let there be light. But if mm -hmm. it was period of light in verse 4 and period of light in verse 5, then we really should say God said, let there be a period of light. And then he separates periods of light and periods of darkness, and he calls one day, the other night. And so we find out that on day one, God created time. Now, that's not an object. That's not material. And therefore, we start saying, well, wait a minute here. Then if day one, at least, is not dealing with something material, then what kind of creation account are we dealing with? Because we tend to think that any creation account, any origins account, has to be about material origins. But here we find on the first day that that's not the case. And once we say, okay, if this account isn't talking about uh, creating, manufacturing objects, then what's the alternative? Well, if time is one of the things that it talks about, you have to say, well, time, what is that? It's a function. It's something to do with order and organization. Uh, so we must be going in that kind of direction. So that's that's how it kind of unfolded. Of course, it wasn't too far down the road that I said, oh, well, the fact is, in the ancient world, uh, the rest of the ancient world, in creation accounts, they also are very interested in functions and order and organization. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is one of the points where there's some similarity. Again, it's mm -hmm. not imposing it on the Bible from the ancient Near East. It's just saying, look, here we're seeing the same thing. The result of that is you say, so this would not be an unusual way for people to think in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to begin into this a little bit more. I am Nick Peters. My guest is Dr. John Walton out of Wheaton, the author of The Lost World of Genesis 1. We'll be back after this break. Check out CYIWorldwide.com. CYIWorldwide.com. Home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you grok? Are you tired of the same old corporate Christian music on the radio? Check out Music Surge on Grok Radio. Playing Christian music that doesn't suck. Download episodes now at CYIWorldwide.com. My guest here is uh, John Barton, uh, Dr. John Barton from Wheaton, and so I thought we'd just come back you know, either play for us a little bit of music that I thought would be a bit appropriate, just throwing in some humor here. We are talking about I couldn't quite make out the words. The music was louder than the words, so I'm not quite sure what went on there. It's all right. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the, the theme from the Waltons was playing there. If I'd be interested. Yes, yes, I heard that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, now we're going back to Genesis one. We've got this whole thing with this account. It's not talking about material apparently. It's talking about function. At least that's the claim right now. And your statement in the book is that as well that the ancients didn't really think something truly existed until it had function. Is that correct? Well, that's the indications that we get because when they, uh, for instance, there's there's some Egyptian texts that talk about the non-existent, and they'll talk mm-hmm. about the oceans as non-existent, and they'll talk about the desert as non-existent, and that should give us an idea that they're defining existence a little bit differently than we are. There's also an Egyptian text I know of, and you probably know about much better than I do, but it's about a someone who conquers his enemies and says, I've rendered them non-existent. And then the next very sentence, he's talking about having them in captivity. It's the same right. kind of paradigm, isn't it? Right, same thing. They're non-functional. They're not functioning anymore. And, you know, and I've also thought that if we brought this over to the New Testament times, and you can just tell me what you think of this, when we look at the language of hell, for instance, a lot of people take that with annihilation and destruction, but... If we were thinking this way, couldn't hell be where <clears throat> people go who have lost their function, as it were, kind of like the refuse of humanity, and therefore, since they've lost their function, they're spoken of as destroyed, even though by our philosophical standards, we'd still say they exist. Is that possible? Well, that that carries the discussion into Hellenistic and Greco-Roman ideas, and uh, by the time we get to those time periods, uh, I'm not sure that the the functional uh, focus is so strong anymore. So that would be a different kind of issue. Okay, I just thought I'd throw it out here. Now, when we look further, you said that light isn't, in this case, since it's day and night and time, it's not something material, but when we look later on at Genesis 1, there are all kinds of material objects. I mean, Genesis 1 even mentions the heavens and the earth, and we're all pretty sure earth is something material, so how can we say that it's not concerned with material? Well, remember, in a house, you know, going back to my house and home, uh, in in a house you've got all this material stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. the material is there, uh, but Mm -hmm. the the question again is not about the origins of the material, Mm -hmm. but you know, the house, but the origins of the home. You could have those mm-hmm. as different discussions. But no discussion of the functions of the home uh, would would not have material. Of course, they presuppose mm-hmm. material. The question yeah. is, what is the account, the account focused on? Mm-hmm. Now, also, the reason why we look at some of those things, okay, we might say, well, see, the sun, moon, and stars are, are material. They're objects. Yeah. Well... We think so, but in the ancient world, they didn't know they were objects. They think mm-hmm. the stars are engraved on the underside of the sky. They don't think they're suns that are that are just further away, so they're small. Mm-hmm. They don't think of the moon or the sun as objects. They call them lights, and they are lights. Mm-hmm. And in the rest of the ancient world, they call them gods. Uh, mm-hmm. So they don't think of the sun, moon, and stars as objects. So in Israel... Un- hears about God uh, ordaining the sun, moon, and stars, they're not thinking about manufacture of objects. They can't. They don't even know they're objects. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I also forgot to start here that we are going to have things open for calls here now, so if someone wants to call and ask a question, and a lot of people I heard were saying they wanted to, the number is 714-242-5180. Now, some of this, Dr. Walton gets into a position also called concordism. Some of my listeners might not be familiar with that term. Could you explain it some? Sure. Concordism is when we take uh, things that we believe are scientifically accurate ideas and statements and mm-hmm. try to find ways to read them into the biblical text. Mm-hmm. So it's this agreement, this concord agreement, between mm-hmm. science and and the Bible. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes concordism happens when people take what they find in the Bible and extrapolate it, expand it into scientific ideas. Uh, other times it happens when you take science and read it in between the lines of the Bible. So the first kind of concordism would be if somebody said, well, the Bible talks about the waters above, so we better go figure out how we've got waters above. That would be a concordism. Got to make Bible and science agree. The other way of concordism, reading the science in between the lines, would be if somebody said, hey, well... thanks for listening uh, to Grok Radio. Be sure to check out... Okay. Uh, they, uh, in the second kind of concordism, when they take the idea of, uh, it says, God spread out the heavens, uh, they'll say, well, we know about the Big Bang and the expanding universe, so we'll read that into that statement um, and say that that's what that means. So concordism can either be moving from the Bible out, waters above, or from science in uh, Big Bang cosmology. Are you there? Have I been cut off? Hello? Okay. I'm going to hang up and call again. Hello? 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 Yes? I'm calling for the Deeper Water Show. Um, yes, uh, something got goofed up in the connection here. I'm trying to, uh, this is John Walton, I'm trying to call back on. Oh! <laughs> so, uh, so something got, so we're not on air, I don't think. <laughs> no, I've got I've got the show playing right now, it's dead air. Yeah. Hello? Hello? Oh, there we are. There's a bit Hello? of a delay. We're, you and I are talking to each other on air. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know what happened to Nick. Well, we're waiting for Nick to come back on. Okay. While we're okay. waiting, do you suppose I can ask you a question? Is that Nick? Yeah. I thought I'm, I heard I'm Nick's here. voice. I'm here. Sorry, I've had technical difficulties. I have no idea what went wrong here. Uh, okay, who, do we, who else do we have on here from the air besides Dr. Wharton here? David Smart, Smart from BC. Okay, so uh, what, what have I missed here? <laughs> okay, did you did you hear my completion of my discussion about concordism? <laughs> no, I didn't. Okay, I don't know how far I got before the uh, before things got broken off. Um, so I was talking about concordism going both ways. 
Yeah. And so one sort of concordism says the Bible talks about the uh, waters above, so we have to go find the waters above so that there's agreement, concordism. Others would say that we know Big Bang cosmology is right, mm -hmm. and so we have to, uh, so we look at a verse like God spread out the heavens, and that must refer to Big Bang cosmology. So there yeah. you're reading science between the lines. Okay, mm -hmm. so those are two different kinds of concordism. Mm -hmm. So that you would ask me what concordism was, there we have it. Okay. Now we it looks like we've had someone who's called in to a show here. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Do you have a question for Dr. Wharton here? I do. Um, I, first of all, I just want to thank you very much for the book that you have written, well, both books that you've written. I've bought them both. I've devoured them both, and they've been extraordinarily helpful and, and encouraging and edifying to my, my spiritual walk personally. And I look forward with great anticipation, anticipation your your next book that's coming out. The question I have for you might be answered in this book, but hopefully you can address it a bit on the air too. Um, given your particular interpretation of Genesis, how are we supposed to understand Genesis 2.5? Now, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. It is very difficult to in interpret this particular verse in any other way than material terms. So how should we approach this in a way that's consistent with your thesis? Um, well, uh, chapter 2, as I understand it, chapter 2, 5, and 6, uh, starts a new account. I don't believe it's a conflicting account or a competing account or anything of that sort, like some, some might. Uh, but it is starting starting again to tell a story a different way. Um, so uh, it's not just continuing across from the seven days. Uh, it's not going back in my mind. It's not going back to tell you about a certain part of the seven days. But in terms of the uh, what the verse is saying, it's basically saying things are not functioning. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to yet. And so it's going to tell about how they get working. And so, you know, it's certainly using material things, shrub and plant and uh, things of that sort, but basically saying things aren't growing, and that's the point. Okay, should we understand this verse as materially there was no shrubs? Um, well, the the terminology that's used here for the different kinds of plants refers specifically to cultivated plants. So it doesn't mean that there were no green things growing at all. Uh -huh. Okay. okay. Um, if I could interject Thank you very something much. in here. You're welcome, Dave. If, um, can you all hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, if I could say something here right quick for Ben Vicaro, he talked about your next book coming out. Would that be the one, The Lost World of Scripture? Um, I don't know if that's what he meant. He might have meant The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Oh, Both okay. of those are... Uh, both of those are in process. Lost World of Scripture will be out first, but Lost mm -hmm. World of Adam and Eve is also contracted and in process. Well, I'm bringing up the Lost World of Scripture mainly because you wrote that book with D. Brent Sandy, and we are, talking, we are talking to him and trying to get him, and I think he probably will, to come on here before the book comes out and tell us a little bit about it, kind of help promote the book. So for those of you listening with spoilers, we could have 
him on you know, he might even want to come back on with you again. And if you want to, you're free to join him. Well, we'll have to see how that develops. Okay. But now getting back to the account here with Concordism. Now, some of your critics have kind of said that you're kind of removing science from the Bible. And this is uh, largely coming from reasons to believe. And I can say up front, I do respect reasons to believe. I'm a member of a local chapter. I think they do fine work. I just disagree with the interpretation of Genesis. And if I remember correctly, Hugh Ross's article even says, has this fear that if you uh, remove science at this point, then you're leaving us without a message to speak for war or what they're concerned about with science. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, um, you know, the folks at Reasons to Believe are friends of mine, and I respect what they mm-hmm. do. I appreciate what they do. And uh, we've we've had a number of conversations, which I appreciate very much. Uh, what I think we have to understand is that what they're doing and what I'm doing are different things. Right. Okay? They're trying to come and show how mm-hmm. the Bible and science are in, in basic agreement, and they would say in, in some very sophisticated ways. What they're trying to do then is to understand the, the compatibility of truths, compatibility between God's yeah. word and God's world, and yeah. that there is compatible truth between those two areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, all, I'm all for the idea that there are compatible truths. We might have conversations about how we identify those, but that's, that's a technical point. But see, I'm not trying to identify compatible truths. I am trying mm-hmm. to identify the authoritative claims of the biblical text. Now, see, right. even Hugh Ross, Hugh Ross would not say that when the Bible talks about God stretched out the heavens, that it's making an authoritative claim about Big Bang cosmology. He wouldn't say that. Yeah. He would say those yeah. truths are compatible. That's great. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, compatible truth is fine. But I'm trying yeah. to say, what are the authoritative claims the Bible is making? That's a different question. And yeah. so in that but, sense, I, I don't know that we're really working against each other here. Um, he might have some questions about the conclusions I come to, and I might have some questions about conclusions he comes to, but we're coming at the material from very different directions. Could it also be that there can be a difference in that the Bible might not explicitly speak about science, but that's also not the same as saying the Bible disagrees with science. Again, yes, that's compatibility. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm all for compatibility, for convergence. I expect there to be convergence. Mm-hmm. I mean, John Lennox has criticized me because he says somehow that I'm I'm thinking that there's no convergence. Well no, I you know, I think there's convergence, but that's not the question mm-hmm. I'm asking. I want to know mm-hmm. about authority and claims because that's how mm-hmm. we're working through some of these uh, science and the Bible questions. Okay. And before we go to break, in case of that, I, I really apologize about the mishap that happened here and such. My computer is not the best in the world. It went a little bit bizarre. Right now, I'm doing this with my phone lines. I appreciate you coming back in, but I apologize to you and to any of my listeners for any mishaps that happened here. That's quite all right, Nick. Mistakes happen. Yep. Okay. But we are going to take a break right now, and we'll be back in a little bit to discuss even more questions and concerns and such. Call our number is 714-242-5180. The guest is Dr. John Walton out of Wheaton. We'll be back after this break. 
Join Army Girl for Christ and Minister Grok as they tackle some of today's pressing issues from a Christian point of view on Truth Be Told. Every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. For more information, check out CYIWorldwide.com. This is Mike Lacona. Nick Peters is my son-in-law, and I'm excited to announce his new podcast in which Nick will discuss and have guests on topics related to Christian apologetics and dealing with disabilities. Nick has already interviewed apologetic stars such as Greg Kokel and Rob Bowman, and I know of other stars he's in the process of inviting. So be sure to check out Nick's new podcast. And a little teaser for all of you listening, if you like from Michael Lacona preview, you'd better be tuning in next week. He will be our guest on the Deeper Waters podcast, which when I was talking to him earlier about this week, I said, you know, it's kind of interesting. We're moving from the uh, controversial statement about the Old Testament and now going straight forward or one about the New Testament. But he's going to be our guest next week. And I did say we're talking something controversial, supposedly, about the Old Testament today. We got John Barton here with us. And he's talking about his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. The call number is 714-242-5180. And I, I can say on my end, though, I don't think I said this earlier, but I definitely consider your book very eye-opening. In fact, nowadays, whenever the Genesis 1 debate comes up, I say people, go read John Walton, then we'll talk about it. <laughs> I, I found it just so incredibly helpful. So, by and large, I, I agree with your thesis. Well, thank you. But when we are talking about concordism, this idea that we're, we're kind of reading science in the Bible, Bill Craig has said you're guilty of concordism, which I thought was interesting because he says you go to day two and you talk about the firmament and you say, well, we know there's no firmament up there and that's supposedly the basis for your case. Now, I don't think you're exactly doing what has been said about you, but is your interpretation of of day two of Genesis 1 concordism? No, I don't think so at all. I'm, mm-hmm. I basically say that the Israelites thought the way that everybody else in the ancient world thought. They believed there was a mm-hmm. solid sky up there, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. that's what's being expressed there. The only reason I mention that there isn't one up there is because when people say Genesis 1 is about God mm-hmm. making objects, mm-hmm. I'm making the point that the only object that is mentioned in day two would mm-hmm. be a firmament and if if we today think it's talking about objects, we're in trouble because we won't find a solid sky up there. So that's really just as a as a um, argument against people who are trying to say that it deals with objects. Uh, I don't think it's dealing with objects at all. Yeah, as I was responding to someone, I was in fact saying your thesis isn't being concordant here. In fact. At that point, it's arguing against concordism because what I think you're essentially saying is if you're going to be a concordist, you better explain this firmament then and where it's at. Right. So it is against concordism. Now, you've also said that the Bible does speak in other terms that are less than scientific, and it's not corrected on this point. For instance, when it says to love with your heart and you think with your heart, now we know today you do that with your brain. But the Israelites weren't thinking about it. They were thinking it was done by heart. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. They, in other so, words, the, 
the physiology that we associate with the brain, they uh-huh. associated with a variety of the entrails, heart, kidney, liver, intestines. Okay. Now, this can get us into what's called, into what I would say is the cold word, to put people on red alert of inerrancy. Now, I, I do hold inerrancy, and you at Wheaton, you also hold inerrancy, right? We do indeed. Okay. But if you're saying that this, that the Bible says that we do this with our hearts, but we don't, then the critic is going to say, isn't that a violation of inerrancy? Well, you know, uh, everyone who defines inerrancy today, and this includes the standard statement of the ICBI, is that when we talk about inerrancy, we mean that it is inerrant in all that it affirms. Inerrancy is associated with the intended affirmation. My contention is that the Bible is not making an affirmation about physiology. It's rather using, incidentally, uh, the ways that people thought in the ancient world. So the Bible does not affirm those things, does not vest its authority in some some description of physiology. It rather is affirming other things. For instance, you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, whether you actually think with your heart and love with your heart or with your kidney or with your brain or whatever it is you love with, the fact is you're supposed to love the Lord your God. So it's not making an affirmation about physiology. It's making an affirmation of the object of your love and the subject of your mm-hmm. thoughts and, and the focus of your beliefs. You know, I do a lot of dialogue with Internet atheists. God have mercy on me for that one. But it, it seems that people are like, even like Richard Dawkins, I've said, why doesn't the Bible tell us anything about a treatment for cancer or about the human genome or anything like this? And I keep thinking, I can't imagine an ancient Israelite getting this message from God and saying, and by the way, there's going to be something discovered in the future called DNA. You need to preserve this for that one generation in the future that's going to discover DNA. The problem is the Bible is not really meant to address those kinds of claims, and it's bizarre to think that we should have those claims be addressed in the Bible, isn't it? Well, it is, and they're they're placing their own expectations and their own demands on the Bible and and deciding yeah. what the Bible should do and shouldn't do. And mm-hmm. that just shows the, the ignorance about what the Bible is and what it does. The Bible is mm-hmm. God's revelation of himself. That means yeah. its focus is going to be on revealing God, not on revealing science, not on revealing physiology or meteorology, not in revealing the ideal grammar, the ideal government, or answers to all of our social issues. The Bible yeah. is revealing God, and if we try to start making it address our agendas, it becomes the, the Bible of our causes instead of God's revelation of himself. Yeah, would this ancient science also include, for instance, that when we go to Leviticus 11 and we read about the bugs, that could be a lot of people look at this statement and say, Bats are described as birds, and these insects are said to have four legs. Now, my response has been, Israelites ate these insects. They knew very well how many legs they had, but two of the legs, I believe the jumping legs, weren't really counted as legs. And as for the bats, the word used doesn't mean birds by our modern taxonomical standards. It just means a creature with wings. And last I checked, Bats have wings. So isn't this part of our 
throwing our modern standards of interpretation onto the Bible as well, then? Well, sure. And, and, you know, when we can give explanations like those that sort of negotiate through it, that's fine. And sometimes we can't. You know, even Jesus talks about the mustard seed as the smallest of seeds, and it's not. But it's okay. We're not, we're not working on scientific um, revelation here or new yeah. scientific information. The idea is that the Bible is communicating clearly, and when you communicate clearly, you use in your conversation that which is familiar to your audience to make points. And so to that extent, the Bible is not trying to affirm those scientific issues. It's just using what people knew. That is not a, um, a, a mark against its inerrancy, because inerrancy is connected to what it is affirming. Yeah. Now, you talk about what the Bible is clearly talking about, and isn't that also part of the problem as well? Because in our modern context, we often look and say, well, this is what the Bible clearly says, when instead we're looking and say, this is what it clearly says to a 21st century American. Mm -hmm. For me, whenever I hear someone say, we should go by what the Bible plain sense is, I say, okay. A 21st century American, a 17th century Chinese, a 13th century German, a 9th century Frenchman. What kind of plain sense? Because all of those cultures and times and peoples will have a different idea of what plain sense of Scripture is. And that's why plain sense is, is not a workable category. The fact is, yeah. um, when you're talking about plain sense, you're already talking mm-hmm. about a text that's been translated. And translation yeah. uh, has the... the potential impact of of distortion. Uh, Instead of saying plain sense, we have to say we want to understand the text as it was intended by the author as he expected his audience to understand it. That's what we're shooting for. There is effective communication going on between an author and his audience, and we need to, to get into that circle of communication and understand what it's saying because it is not written to us, it is written for us. In fact, one of the questions in the back of your book that people ask in your response, you can give it here, is why are you having a problem with a literal interpretation of Genesis 1? Well, again, literal can be a tricky term. I had a student walk into class, pouring rain outside, student walk in, dripping wet, and says, it's literally raining cats and dogs out there. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? You know, literal can be a tricky word. The fact is, we want to take the Bible seriously. And to take it seriously, we have to understand what the author intended to say. The author knows what he's saying. And we want to know what that intention is and how his audience would have heard it. You can't take Mm -hmm. the text more literally than that. Mm -hmm. N.T. Wright has, in fact, that we don't really know what literary means anymore that literal properly understood just means as the author intended it to be taken, which could include figures of speech, it could include straightforward talk, it could include anything, but all of those are considered literal interpretations. God has vested his authority in that human author, and therefore our goal is to understand what that human author meant, because what that human author meant is the purpose of God and it has authority. That's what we're after. Uh-huh. Okay. So when we're looking 
at this text bin. We're trying to understand what it means. I, I just find that so we, we have to get back into the ancient mindset. And for that, we need to be doing things like reading the old books and things of that sort, right? Well, that and also we have to be reading the text closely. You know, when I asked that basic question in, in, in day one, why didn't God call the light light? That's just trying to read the text closely. So it's close yeah. reading of text to start with. But then also reading the ancient world can help us to become informed about how people tended to think in the ancient world. Again, when we read the biblical text, we would never stop and say, oh, wait, you know, people in the ancient world didn't think that the moon was an object. You wouldn't know yeah. that. Yeah. You'd never think of that on your own, but yeah. when you get reading the ancient texts, then you can understand how that all, all plays out. So we have to read the text for what it says and what it is. We have to read ancient literature so we can get some, uh, some sense of that ancient world. I mean, we have over one million cuneiform tablets. This is an incredible resource to understand <laughs> the ancient world. In fact, what I've told people to do before is that usually when we meet in our churches, we have our small groups and such, we make this huge mistake, I think, with understanding the Bible, because the first question we ask is, what does the text mean to me? And if we're using something like, say, an Old Testament text, like Genesis 1, I'll tell people, the first thing you want to ask this question is not what does it mean to me, but what did it mean to the original listeners, even before the New Testament? If you didn't have a New Testament, what would you have been taking that offer mean then you can look and say what does it mean in light of the new testament and then you can say what does it mean to me today would you agree that's with that? exactly right exactly right nick that the text can't mean what it never meant mm-hmm. you know we we determine what the text means by trying to understand the authoritative voices that are there those voices have have been um have been directed by the holy spirit and that's what we need to know the holy spirit uh, has given that message, and that's what we're trying to get. You know, I found it odd, though, in fact, when I was reading about your criticism from RTB, and again, I respect RTB. If someone has a question about science, RTB is usually the first place I send to because they're phenomenal, I think, with science. I mean, the, I mean, I'll state right up front, I'm not a scientist, so... My opinion's not the best, and you're not a scientist either as far as I know, which is why when it comes to these science questions, I don't answer them directly. But it seemed odd to me that the criticisms were talking about how you're not taking the text literally, you're depending on the outside information and such. And I thought, what's ironic about this is that that's the exact same thing that's been said about older creationism for the longest time, from young of creationists, that they're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, and again, uh, everybody's uh, sometimes too ready to accuse those who differ with them of a flawed hermeneutic. In fact, uh, the, the claim is that you're supposedly taking science out of the text, but instead what you're saying is, no, I'm not taking science out of the text, it was other people who put science in the text to begin with. I'm restoring the text to what it said. Uh, I'm trying to understand what the Israelites have in the text. Yeah. And the Israelites mm-hmm. don't have modern science in the text. If people at Reasons to Believe, for instance, believe that God planted 
uh, you know, sophisticated science in the text and we can find it today, that's a different question. That's a different issue. I want to know what the Israelites had in the text because that has authority. Now, they have, it has been said, though, and I think this is a fair criticism raised that the ancient people did have some interest in these kinds of questions, that the Egyptians did study astronomy and Moses did grow up in an Egyptian culture. He would have known about what they learned on astronomy. So can we really say the ancient Israelites had no interest in this? Well, the, the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians all studied astronomy, but they think they're mm -hmm. gods. They don't know mm -hmm. that they're objects. They think they're gods. So to them, mm -hmm. they're not studying the material world. They're studying what they believe the gods are doing. That's a different mm -hmm. thing altogether. And one of my friends who was raising a lot of questions about your thesis on here was constantly reminding me about this, and I'm sure something you wouldn't mind disagreeing, you wouldn't disagree with at all, was that the Genesis 1 account was, in fact, a nuclear bomb going off back then, because just like you said, they thought the sun and moon were gods. And here, God shows up in Genesis 1 and says, Son, uh, you can light up a day. Moon, I'll give you the night. And he just treats these casually. I mean, I know you said they weren't objects to them, but in a way, he treated them like they were, in a sense, just common objects. They were just simple lights to him. And this right. would have rocked the ancient world. Well, well, of course, that, and that's, that's what the Israelites considered them, lights rather mm -hmm. than objects, but not gods. And so, yes, mm -hmm. this is a very different view than what the Babylonians or Egyptians would have had, because they have mm -hmm. the gods kind of all integrated into the cosmos, mm -hmm. whereas the God mm -hmm. of Israel is standing outside and controlling the cosmos. Mm -hmm. There's also a very different view of people. Uh, in the ancient yeah. world, people were created to be slaves for the gods, to meet the needs the gods had. Israel, God mm -hmm. gives a very different perspective to where he says that, no, you don't meet my needs. I'm going to meet your needs, um, but uh, I don't have any needs. And, in mm -hmm. fact, you're not my slaves. You're my vice regents. You're in my image. And so it's a mm -hmm. very different picture. But, again, we don't appreciate fully the significance of that difference if we don't know how the ancient world thought. So the ancient and, world uh, literature can help us understand and appreciate both the similarities and the differences. Well, the role of man is certainly something very interesting to talk about in relation to the account of a temple. And we're getting ready to come to a break, so we'll just go ahead. We'll take a break, and we come back, we'll talk about that. I'm Nick Peters. This is the Deeper Waters Podcast. Our guest is Dr. John Warden. The call-in number is 714-242-5180. We'll be back after this break. Join Unituber and Army Girl for Christ as they discuss spiritual warfare, spiritual preparedness, the end times, life issues, and personal and spiritual growth. That's www.truthradionet.com, truthradionet.com. Hi, 
this is Justin Brawley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast, recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. And indeed, we do have an excellent guest with us today. Our excellent guest is Dr. John Barton out of Wheaton, talking about his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And you just said something about men create as vice regents, and then we could add in men and women both created as vice regents. Now, you said that in your book that this is a temporal account, and the last work of creation in an account would be to put the idol in the temple. Is that correct? Uh, that that would come after the temple is all constructed, yes. Mm-hmm. So how does that relate to Genesis 1? Well, I think it has uh, has some relation, but I wouldn't make a lot out of it. Uh, the, mm-hmm. That the image, uh, you know, when a temple was constructed, it was built in order to house the image. And likewise, mm-hmm. in the Genesis account, the cosmos is set up to function on behalf of the image, which is people, and therefore yeah. it has that has that connection to it. Uh, the mm-hmm. image uh, works in much the same way in the Bible as we find in the rest of the ancient Near East, except in the Bible it applies to all people, whereas in most of the ancient mm-hmm. Near East it pertains to the king. So there's mm-hmm. some differences, but the 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 nature of the image is very similar to what you would find in the rest of the ancient Near East. And in Genesis 1, men and women are described in a way as if they're supposed to rule over the creation. They're supposed to have dominion. They're supposed to take charge. Is that correct? Yep. Sounds like functions, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And we we had on here a few weeks ago, I'm not sure if you know about him, but we had E. Calvin Beisner on talking about environmentalism. And this was one of the texts we pointed to. It says, yes, man's supposed to take care of Europe, and as we know from Genesis 2, he's supposed to attend the garden. The the subdue and rule, I think, definitely applies to the task that humans have been given, uh, mm-hmm. but it already is addressing the idea of sacred space. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Bible's focus there is not purely an ecological one. It's a sacred yeah. one because the cosmos yeah. is being made a sacred space. And, of course, the Garden of Eden is sacred space. So tending mm-hmm. the garden is not just a, a matter of landscaping or, or pruning or planting. Tending the garden is caring for and preserving sacred space. We have to remember that mm-hmm. the garden is not just kind of green space. The garden is sacred space. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to remind people of our call-in number here. If you still have a question, you'd like to ask Dr. Wharton at 714-242-5180. You've talked about this being sacred space, which could kind of get us into the idea of this being a temple. Now, you've said in your book the last thing a deity did in his temple was dwell in it, and that was seen by resting could you expound on that some? Sure. Um, you know, sacred space comes about because divine presence is there. So mm-hmm. when we talk about a temple, a temple delineates, marks 
territory, which uh, then, because deity indwells it, it becomes sacred. Now, that, that divine indwelling is what we refer to as, as rest. It's true that in Genesis, God rests from, he ceases from, but he ceases from his ordering work because it is ordered mm-hmm. to the extent that he wants it to. And when de- yeah. deity takes up a rest, takes up his rest in some place, again, usually called a temple because that's where deities rest. Um, yeah. That is not just a relaxing or leisure. Uh, that refers to rule. Uh, resting mm-hmm. is not the opposite of activity. Resting is the opposite of unrest. And the theology of the Old Testament, well, the theology of the Bible, um, shows us this to be the case. When God gives rest to the Israelites in Deuteronomy mm-hmm. and Joshua, he doesn't give them relaxation or leisure. What he does is he mm-hmm. gives them stability and order in the society that comes from not being invaded constantly by their enemies. When uh when Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, that's clearly not a nap. That's talking about <laughs> orders that, the order of God's kingdom that he's inviting them into. And to take my yoke upon you. It's not relaxation. It's a higher level of order and stability. When Hebrews 4 says, you've not yet entered that rest, uh, that's not talking about it's not nap time yet. That's saying that uh, that there's still yet a higher level of order and stability. So God resting has to do with God ruling. And for that, you can read Psalm 132 and see that element clearly there. This gets me into something that one of my friends who's a young earth creationist, I want me to ask you about how that the account in Genesis 1 seems to be very chronological, and then we can take this over to the fourth commandment in Exodus, and we find the same chronological basis there. So, if, so he, he's under the impression that you're saying this isn't a chronological account creation, but if it isn't, why is it written in a chronological style? If, and how that relates to Exodus 20, if that question makes sense to you. Yeah, well, first of all, the sequence in Genesis 1, then I'll talk about Exodus 20. The sequence in Genesis 1 is about seven days. And, of course, as you know, I believe that there are seven literal 24-hour days. It's just that I don't believe that they are days connected to the material Mm. origins of the cosmos. But the importance of those seven days uh, is that in the first three, functions are proclaimed. Time, remember, Mm -hmm. we talked about. Uh, So functions are proclaimed. And in the days four, five, and six, functionaries are installed. That's the same Mm -hmm. kind of thing that happens when temples are built and when God inhabits his temple, they proclaim the functions and they they install the functionaries. And all of that takes place in a seven-day ceremony, seven literal Mm 24-hour days. And so the sequence that's here, it's not important as a material sequence. It's prioritized as a functional sequence because time and weather and food are the most important functions. Then you have the functionaries. So the sequence is not chronologically, uh, materially designated. Now, when you get to Exodus, and it says, uh, you have to be careful what it says there. It says that on six days you shall do, that's the Hebrew verb asah, all of your work. And on the seventh day you shall not do, that's the Hebrew verb asah, uh, any work because in six days God did his work. Mm-hmm. He did the heaven and the earth. 
it's we translated did in the previous verses. We should translate it that he did. What does it mean to do the heavens and the earth? Well, the heavens and the earth are his work, just like the verses talked about the work that people have. The heavens and the earth are his work. And we can see that very specifically in Genesis 2, 2 and 3, which is where Exodus 20 is quoting from. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. That's that same verb, asa. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. What's it calling his work? Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work. What is the work? The work of creating. Bara is his work. Mm -hmm. Creating the heavens and the earth is his work. And the mm -hmm. work of creating all that he had done, that's Asa. So when we recognize where Exodus 20 is quoting from, we understand that it's talking about God doing his work, and that work is giving functions and roles and bringing order, as Genesis 1 tells us. Since you've mentioned those words, you do make a lot in the book about the Hebrew word, bara. A lot of people have said that bara means create out of nothing, and God alone is the subject of it. But your stance seems to be that bara isn't really talking that way, is it? No, um, you know, it, certainly it's true that God is the only subject, but when you look at the wide yeah. variety of objects, which I've listed mm -hmm. in the book for people to, to look at, you find out mm -hmm. that, um, that uh, of course, they're not, they don't talk about materials with bara, because I would say bara is not a material act. Bara has to do with ordaining, establishing, proclaiming a function, setting, making something right. work, bringing order to it. Yeah. And that's not something that deals with materials. So it doesn't do any good to say, well, you know, they never mention materials with bara. Well, of course they don't. It's not a material activity. But, uh, again, that doesn't mean that it's manufacturing something out of nothing. And, of course, remember, by the way, I do believe that God did make physically material everything that exists. And when he did it, he did it out of nothing. But mm -hmm. my point is that's not the story that Genesis 1 is telling. Mm -hmm. That I mean, we can definitely go to other verses, though, maybe look at, for instance, we could consider a verse such as one about Hebrews 11 that he called things that didn't exist into existence and such, or maybe Romans 4, 17, passages like that. We could go to other passages and look and say, well, what do these passages say? But if we go to Genesis 1, we can't have Genesis 1 say what it was never meant to say. Right. Uh, we have plenty of places, both Old and New Testament, that mm -hmm. make the, the, the basic affirmation that God made everything that there is. Even in the mm -hmm. Old Testament, when it talks about God laying the foundation of the earth, that's kind of a material yeah. statement, and that's fine. But it doesn't describe how or when or by what process or anything of that sort, just as God did it. Mm -hmm. Now, William Lane Craig... And, again, I've got a lot of respect for Craig. I'm part of a local Reasonable Faith chapter, but he's made a case about yours, about Barah, but he thought that it was the exact opposite of what you said. Now, you've heard Craig's podcast on that I sent them to you. What did you think about Craig's criticism, if you in that regards? Um, you know, I I felt like he was a little bit unfair because he yeah. tried to apply Aristotelian categories to mm -hmm. what I was talking about. And my very point is that we can't apply Aristotelian or Enlightenment or modern post-Darwinian mm -hmm. categories 
when we're thinking about the ancient world. So he did the very thing that I was saying that I didn't think we ought to do. Uh, so I had a problem with that. Secondly, uh, he didn't seem to understand what I meant by functions. I'm not talking about scientific functions or material functions. I'm talking about functioning for people, working for us. Again, you can't have something functioning as a home if people aren't living there. And it's that kind of functions that I'm talking about. It's not that the sun wasn't shining or the, the you know, uh, plants weren't growing. It's not that, that, that I'm suggesting those things weren't happening. It's rather that now they're going to function for people who have been moved into this home, so to speak. And so uh, I, I felt like he totally misunderstood uh, what I meant by functions and material, and his critique, I think, demonstrated that. Well, I felt badly for that. Yeah, I, I was getting very frustrated. I was listening to it, especially when your view was described as ridiculous, bizarre, and obviously wrong, and I was going, well, that seems to escape the notice of a number of other Old Testament scholars and such, and it kind of says something about every single one of us who accepts your view that our thinking capacities must not be working correctly, but it sounds like even in his in his uh, teaching on your theory that he has you as having these animals sitting around not able to do anything, but lo and behold, God gives a function, and all of a sudden things start working. Was that the impression you got as well? well? That's the impression I got, but that's clearly not what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And that he, when he talked about the uh, bit with the Aristotelian logic, what he said is you're confusing the material cause with the final cause, but it seems to me the problem is that you're not talking about language at all. Right. I'm not talking about cause at all. Yeah. Now, he assumes that if you're talking about creation, you're talking about cause. But again, yeah. there were, you know, yeah, uh, he's bringing modern categories into an ancient conversation. In fact, there's some things he was saying about philosophy. I was saying, I don't think you disagree with a lot of it at all. You're just saying that the average is right didn't speak this language, so it doesn't work that way. That's correct. And as I've told some other people, the danger we have, for instance, the people have reasons to believe, they're largely scientists, that's fine, nothing wrong with that. Craig, he, his specialty is in philosophy, that's fine, nothing wrong with that, but the danger any of us has is we can often bring our specialty to the text and start reading the text in light of that. And so Craig will read the text as a philosopher and apply these philosophical categories, and Hugh Ross will read it as a scientist and apply these scientific categories. And that's something we all have to work to overcome with where we are. But when they're doing that, they're imposing on the text in that sense, and that's a great danger, isn't it? Right. It's no different than the people who read are ethicists and read it as an ethics tract, or people who are feminists and read it as feminist literature. Uh, you know, uh, people who are um, into politics and they read it as liberation theology. We really can't make the text be what we are or to address the questions we are trying to ask. We have to try to take it on its own terms and understand it in its own context. Mm -hmm. now, I understand that in listening to my Hugh Ross, that a 
you've actually let him come and speak to your class about this topic before, haven't you? Um, he's been in classes that I've been involved in. It isn't specifically mm-hmm. a class that I alone taught, but he has uh, he has taught um, he has presented material at Wheaton to uh, to our students. Mm-hmm. Now, in his uh, talk, he did say in his article, in his article, he did mention things about, for instance, uh, liberal theology and such. How would you respond to this charge that you're guilty of? liberal theology. Well, obviously liberal is a term that everybody has the freedom to define how they want, and often it yeah. just says theology that's different from mine. Uh, <laughs> but typically yeah. typically liberal theology refers to people who do not accept the authority of the text, uh, do not accept some of the basic theological tenets, such as that Jesus is God, uh, or Trinitarianism. Liberal theology could be explained as, as many different things. But it typically has to do with people who do not take the text seriously. It's really hard to take the text more seriously than what I take the text. You know, when I've been talking to people about this, what I've said is that these terms, when we throw them off out, such as liberal theology or inerrancy or inspiration, or one that we're going to get into soon, theistic evolutionists, these can kind of be used in a sense of like a rhetorical code words to get people on red alert so that they'll just discount what you say immediately. Yeah, um, and that that's why we're trying to address some of those things in this new book, The uh, Lost World of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we did just talk about theistic evolution some. Now, the charge is that your interpretation, what you're doing is you're doing it to make room to allow for evolution in a text. Is that your sense? Um, that's that's obviously an assumption about my motives, and that assumption is incorrect. I have not embraced evolution. I do not advocate or promote evolution, um, and therefore I wouldn't be trying to make room for it. Uh, if it mm-hmm. does make room for people who do believe in evolution, that's not my problem. My question mm-hmm. is, what is it that the text claims? So that's mm-hmm. a red herring, and it shouldn't mm-hmm. it shouldn't dissuade us. In fact, what we can't even say is, let's suppose you are making room for theistic evolution. It doesn't make your argument any more or less wrong. The argument stands or falls on its own, regardless of the motive that you have for putting forward the argument. Well, and again, they they don't know what my motives are. They can't assess my motives except by what I say they are. And if they disbelieve me, well, then that's a problem. Um, The Mm -hmm. fact is I'm trying to read the text for what it is. If that ends up Mm -hmm. leaving room for somebody that my critic disagrees with, well, that's that's really not my problem. I've got Mm -hmm. to read the text for what it is. Okay. Well, we're on here with uh, Dr. John Wharton from talking about the Lost World Genesis 1. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back to discuss even more of the relationship of science and text based on Wharton's thesis. We'll be back after this break. Check out CYIWorldwide.com. CYIWorldwide.com. Home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you grok? Hey, this is Minister Grok. Thanks for listening. Although Grok Radio is free... 
There are costs to upkeep the website, podcasts, and purchase Bibles and materials for street ministry. And while we are happy to pay this ourselves out of pocket, we will gladly accept any gifts if you feel led to support the shows and our street ministry. You can send a gift or love offering through our website at cyiworldwide.com. Thanks for your support, and God bless. And I'd like to remind my listeners that CYI Worldwide and indeed Deeper Waters itself are both listener-supported. It does cost resources to keep ministries like ours going, and we definitely appreciate any help that you can give. And if you want to donate to Deeper Waters, you can do so from my blog page at deeperwaters.wordpress.com. You can do so through our sister ministry of tectonics.org. And you can do so through Ratio Christi, where I'm the Issues and Answers chapter there. Now, we've talked about science here, some relationship with science and your thesis. The charge hasn't been, been brought up of theistic evolution, and you come out and said, no, you're not a theistic evolutionist. Now, there are a number of theistic evolutionists, like uh, Francis Collins, who do accept your thesis, but someone can clearly accept your thesis and still not accept theistic evolution. A young creationist can accept your thesis. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. But My position think, does not really dictate which which of those you come from. Yeah, it, it's. I know it's a strange idea to let the evidence dictate your position a lot of times. It's one I'm sure we'll catch on to eventually. But I think one of the great beauties of your idea is that when we do this kind of thing, a text like Genesis 1 can too often suddenly make it be that this is a case of science versus the Bible. And I think whenever we do that kind of thing, we're setting ourselves up on losing ground. It's a breeding way of creating atheists by saying you can either believe what you can determine of your own senses or you can take faith as it were, and believe the Bible. But your position is, no, the Bible is not saying anything here. So the beauty of this is it means the science debate on the age of the earth, evolution, things like that, that can remain in science where it belongs and let the science sort itself out. Well, I think that's true. I mean, the... uh, I go about trying to understand what claims the Bible's making. If the Bible makes a scientific claim, I'm ready to stand by it. Even if it's unpopular, uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera, uh, I'm willing to stand by the claims of the Bible, but I want to make sure that I understand what those claims are. As I see uh-huh. it, the Bible is really not making claims that are contrary uh, to what science is making, and therefore they can't be uh-huh. in conflict, there can't be a war, uh, Certainly some scientists say science proves there is no God, but that's scientists. That's not science. And so science doesn't say anything one way or the other about God, and therefore that can't be a competing claim. And in fact, some of my listeners who are young earth creationists, I don't think they should have no trouble with this because we're constantly told that if we did our science right, we'd know the earth is young for instance, and I do speak as an old author, but my wife's a young author, my ministry partner's a young author, but my tell you is if you're sure science will show you the earth is young, you shouldn't have any problem 
with Florence thesis comes you can say, okay, we don't need to have this debate. Let's just go straight to the scientific evidence and just see what the science says. In my experience, um, most people who are young earth are young earth uh-huh. because they believe the Bible demands it. And then yeah. they go ahead and try to find ways that science might be able to support it. But they believe uh-huh. in the young earth because they believe the Bible demands it. Now, yeah. if they if they came to believe that the Bible didn't demand it, would they still be young earth just on the, the strength of the science alone? Maybe some of them would, but I think lots of them wouldn't. Most of them are trying uh-huh. to make the science stick because they believe yeah. the Bible demands it. I'm trying uh-huh. to look at whether the Bible demands it, regardless of whether the science is, is good science or bad science. I want to know what the Bible demands. The very fact that young earth people often talk about the apparent age of the earth. That sounds uh-huh. to me like an admission that what they see about the earth looks like it's old. But they're trying yeah. to say, well, but it's not old because the Bible demands otherwise. Well, uh-huh. that's that's why we look at what the Bible demands. Uh-huh. Now, we could also, in turn, say the same thing about evolution. That, <clears throat> And I'm not a theistic evolutionist, but we, we could say a lot of us, reject evolution because we look at what the Bible says and the Bible seems to demand that we not accept evolution. So when we go back to science and we start doing it this way, and it could be that, unfortunately, our science, uh, our, I'm sorry, our interpretation is driving our science instead of having our science, instead of having it be that we're just looking at the science as science alone, Right. Again, it makes it makes a difference in terms of how yeah. you're trying to work this material together. Uh, lots mm-hmm. of people think that evolution, by definition, is godless or atheistic, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have to make sure that we define our, our terms carefully. Um, but mm-hmm. yet at the same time, evolution is an explanatory model, and it, it lots of people feel that it has a lot of power as an explanatory model. Others have their questions about whether it really... Uh, is is adequate as a model. Uh, but, you know, those are scientific questions. Does evolution have anything inherently in it that is contrary to a biblical teaching? Um, you know, I, uh, those are questions we have to ask, but you don't start yeah. by, uh, but with evolution, you start with, what is it that the Bible is teaching? Mm-hmm. In, in fact, <clears throat> we could even say out up front that <clears throat> it could be the case that Evolution in itself wouldn't conflict with a Bible, but that it is a far cry from saying evolution is true. And again, this gets to me the beauty of your thesis, because it lets the scientists debate the science. And mm-hmm. it's been one of my think, thoughts that uh, the reason we've gotten into so much trouble in this kind of debate is we haven't made it science versus science. We've made it the Bible versus science. And so if evolution is wrong, let it be shown not on grounds of this is what the Bible says, because then we got Bible versus science, but let it be shown grounds of this is what science says. And let people like RTB debate people such as Biologos on those grounds instead, and let the theologians and the biblical scholars, the Old Testament scholars, interpret the Old Testament this way still. Let the Bible people work on the Bible and at the scientists work on the science. It just seems like this is a 
pretty good idea for us to be following. Well, it, it is especially an important idea because typically people who know Bible and theology are not scientists, just like yeah. scientists are not people trained in Bible and theology. Yeah. What is the problem with cross-disciplinary work? Yeah, I'm usually noticed in the area of reading works like the New Atheist and such, but I've told people is, I'm not a scientist, so I don't quote on science. I let scientists interact. If only the New Atheist would return the favor and not talk about theology and history and philosophy unless they've done their proper background study. And so what you're saying with this idea is that Christians who don't understand science should stay out of the science debate. If we're going to talk about creation scientifically, we need to do so scientifically and not biblically, as it were. Is that correct? I I don't know if I would quite say it that way, but I, I yeah. don't draw an objection to it. We we do have to uh, to look at those things as uh, disciplines that are distinct from one another to see what claims mm-hmm. they're actually making. Again, the new atheists would like us to think that science is making a claim that has no room for God. Well, no, science doesn't make that claim. Science can't make that claim. Yeah. Um, and so, again, we have to make sure that we understand what um, what each one is doing. Mm-hmm. Now, you've also spoken some about intelligent design in your book and how this uh, should uh, should be interacted with in the classroom. How does intelligent design relate to all of this? Well, intelligent design, most basically, tries to show that uh, evolution as an explanatory model has its, <laughs> has its deficiencies. Uh, that is, that it yeah. really cannot serve as an explanatory model in all the ways that they want it to. So in that way, intelligent design is a critique of the evolutionary model um, and all that it claims. Um, you know, intelligent design then, in that sense, doesn't have a lot to say about the Bible or about theology. Um, it has a designer, but as they are always quick to say, uh, that's pretty vague in the way that they formulate things. So they're trying to figure out whether a scientific model is adequate or not. And they they don't think that it is, so that's that's how that discussion fits in. Mm-hmm. And what you said in the book of that intelligent design, ironically, ultimately concerns purpose, which gets us back to your thesis, doesn't it? Right. Uh, the, the whole idea of, of purpose and intent uh, is at the heart of all of that. And again, I I don't, I don't want scientists. Uh, I don't want scientists saying that there is no purpose uh, and that mm-hmm. science somehow shows there is no purpose. It doesn't. Um, whether yeah. science can show there is a purpose, well, that's still the jury's out on that, and that's what the intelligent design people are arguing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ironic since we're talking about Bill Craig and his criticism of you earlier and how he applied Aristotelian causality to what you said. <clears throat> no. Philosophically, I'm a good Thomist, so, yeah, I'm all for Aristotle. Such, and one thing I know from that is Aristotle, when he talked about causality, he considered the final cause to be the most important cause that we could talk about. 
with anything. And my listeners who don't know what final cause is, function. Why does something exist? What purpose does it serve? So even there, that comes back to final cause, that comes straight back to function. Well, I suppose that it can. Again, I'm not a philosopher any more than I'm a scientist. So yeah. <laughs> out of my field. And even uh, even more ironically, when we look at evolution, the writer Ian Gerson wrote in his book from Aristotle Darwin back again that evolution, in fact, is also all about function, that things come about the way they do in order to survive, and they keep the traits, the genes and such that they have, because these are the ones that are most fit for survival. So once again, wherever we go, we have function, it seems. Yes, but at the same time, the function mm. that I'm talking about is not Aristotelian yeah. cause function, yeah. and it's not Darwinian biological function. It is mm-hmm. a human-oriented, people in God's image function where the world right. works for them. Again, so it's, uh, you know, you could talk about on the house-home model, you could talk about uh, the functioning of the plumbing system that water runs through the pipes and comes out the faucet, so that's fine. But in the functioning level of the home, it doesn't work that way until somebody's there to turn that faucet. And so I'm talking about function really at a different level than all of those. You know, in the end... Uh, you know, we can say, well, is this a, an account of functional origins or material origins? But in the end, I think it's an account of sacred space origins. That yeah. is, imagine imagine Moses on the plains of Sinai with the Israelite elders the night before they're ready to dedicate the tabernacle. Okay. And he says to them, oh, okay, do you, do you understand the gravity of what we're doing since the time of Adam and Eve? We have not had sacred space on earth. And starting tomorrow, in this seven-day dedication ceremony, God is going to come and reestablish sacred space here on earth. So Mm -hmm. something something important, big, is going to happen here. Now let's look back Mm -hmm. at the story of how it happened. God first Mm -hmm. established sacred space for people in his image. That's Genesis 1. Uh, yeah. God related with people in sacred space. That's Genesis 2. And then mm. people violated that sacred space. So you can think of Moses telling the story of how how God had intended sacred mm. space from the start and how he had designed sacred space to work for people where he could relate to them. And now here it is happening again. Remember, Genesis 1 is not God talking to Adam. It's Moses talking to Israel, for instance. Mm. That is a very fascinating insight into the text. I love this kind of stuff going on. And we find that this continues throughout. When King Solomon builds his temple, God officially dwells with the people once again in a temple. And then when we get to the New Testament, we have that Jesus in John 1.14 tabernacles amongst us. And that's the same concept as the temple, essentially, isn't it? Right, he's Emmanuel, God with us. We get the same thing again at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the church and we become the temple, as Paul tells us. Mm-hmm. You know, it is ironic. I was about to say right after that, and then Paul describes us as a temple that we are now the sacred space. 
in which God exactly. is dwelling. And then when we get to the end of Revelation, we have the fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven as the new Jerusalem comes down. And then once again, just like in Genesis 1, except I'd say even better, the entire cosmos becomes sacred space for God to dwell in. Right, and it furthermore makes it very clear that verse 22 in Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the mm-hmm. Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Mm. Mm. Very, so, very good. So this this interpretation of Genesis 1 ties a tight cord around around Scripture and the major mm-hmm. themes of Scripture because we're going from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21. We are including the major steps of the uh, temple tabernacle, of the incarnation, mm-hmm. of the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, these mm-hmm. are the major themes. So you can see that this interpretation of Genesis 1 also fits with the overall flow of canon. I can't but think about N.T. Wright's review here. And I'll just read a paragraph of what's right here on Amazon. John Martin's expertise in the ancient Near Eastern sources enables him to shed a flood of new and unexpected light on the deeper meaning of Genesis 1. The creator, Genesis is saying, designed heaven and earth as a great temple of the intention of coming to live in it himself. And the Sabbath isn't just a nice break after work is done, but the moment when he takes up residence in the world he has just made. The implications of this resonate right through the rest of the Bible. This is not just a book to invite creationists to think differently. It is a book to help all Bible students read the whole of Scripture with fresh eyes. And I appreciate what Tom had to say. Uh, in the book I'm doing on the lost world of Adam and Eve, in fact, Tom Wright has agreed to write the chapter on the New Testament material, so we'll be working together mm-hmm. on that project. And as I'm hearing all this, it's just not that it, when we approach the beginning in a totally different light than we did before, this requires us to read all of the Bible differently. When we realize the very start of the Bible is talking about sacred space and the holiness and grandeur of God and what he intends to do with his people, then when we come to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, we really can see with a greater hint what a great tragedy has taken place, especially in Genesis 3. Exactly. With Genesis 3, we often think that they lost paradise. That's a terrible mistake. Um, Mm. Because the Garden of Eden is, again, not not a green space paradise, uh, primarily. Genesis 3 is sacred space. And Mm -hmm. when when the fall took place, we lost access to sacred space, and that's Mm -hmm. the big tragedy. We also tend to think that the sin is eating fruit or disobeying. Uh, Mm -hmm. While those two things are both true, that's not the issue. The issue is they did those things, they disobeyed and they ate fruit because they wanted to be like God, and that's Mm -hmm. the fall. And so, again, it should, it should revamp some of our theology of how we think about these things. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming up to our final segment here, and those of you who are still wanting to call in and ask a question, they'll be taking your chance soon. 
Our number is 714-242-5180. We are here with Dr. John Walton. I'll be back after this break. Join Unituber and Army Girl for Christ as they discuss spiritual warfare, spiritual preparedness, the end times, life issues, and personal and spiritual growth. That's www.truthradionet.com, truthradionet.com. Check out CYIWorldwide.com. CYIWorldwide.com. Home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you grok? And we're here with Dr. John Wharton out of Wheaton. We're talking about his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Our call in number is 714-242-5180. All lines are open, and I'm certainly hoping that we didn't lose a lot of people when we had that little slip of barrier and knocked us off the air. And for those who are planning on tuning in here next week, I hope that's all of you. Our guest will be Mike Lacona. We'll be talking about his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. Now, Dr. Warren, as you've been uh, telling me all this information all be- on my listeners, is I'm just taking it all and just processing it all, and it's remind me of what I've been told about how Genesis 1 was a nuclear bomb going off that aged all the pagan worlds, and part of the problem then, it seems, with what we do often with Genesis 1, we make it all about what we're concerned in, is that we remove the proper subject of Genesis 1. I wouldn't really say it's creation, it's God, creation is just meant to reveal to us certain things about God himself, such as the idea that the, the sun and the moon, whichever is considered God's, God says, essentially, I'm in charge of that. They're going to light up my world for me. Would you say that's an accurate way of looking at Genesis 1 as more about God than anything else? I say that about every part of Scripture in every way. <laughs> it's all about God. Mm-hmm. And so when we come, but if we do come to this and we make it the creation debate, we do end up missing a lot of that about God, don't we? Right, well, because we focus on our issues and concerns and our agendas. Uh, we try to make it the text that's going to um, answer our questions, and we we just can't do that. We have to let it be what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have said about your claims that, why can't it be that in this you know, I'd like to have you explain why can't it be that this is both about material, which would be our concerns, and about function? I mean, Bill Craig I think even said that if you were just saying function is an added part of it, he wouldn't agree, but he says you've excluded material from it and so he, he can't accept it. What's your response to why couldn't it be both? Uh, of course it could be both. Uh, you know, we we have to go where the text goes. And my challenge to people that say that is, um, just like I have to prove it's functional, you have to prove it's material. Now, if it's mm-hmm. going to be material, you have certain expectations of a material account. If it's material, mm-hmm. we expect that it would start with no material, but the text doesn't. Material is already there mm-hmm. when it starts in verse 2. If it's material, you expect it to deal with objects day by day. It doesn't. 
And there's hardly mm-hmm. any of the day that deal with objects, that God actually is manufacturing objects. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we have to look at the, the text itself to get our lead. So uh, why can't it be both? Well, it, it could be, but we have to ask what it is, not what it could be. And once again, we come to the problem that if we we're saying it's material, then when we get to the firmament, well, we have to decide what we're going to do about it. But if we take it as functional, then we don't have to decide. And like we said earlier, that's not taking a concordist approach. That's rather pointing out a problem of a concordist approach. Correct. Now, you've also said that you, you start out with verse 2. You said Genesis 1 is more of a header, haven't you? Yes. Um, and, and that's a fairly common view today, that Genesis 1.1 1, 1 is a yeah. literary introduction to the chapter. So it's like mm-hmm. saying, in the beginning God created heavens and earth. Let me tell you how he did it. Now, there's a good mm-hmm. reason to come to that conclusion. Uh, of course, Genesis works with literary introductions all the way through the book, so it's not surprising to have one here. But secondly, and more importantly, across the context itself, we find that the heavens and earth are created in the seven days, not before them. And you can tell that by the way that the account ends in the early verses of Genesis 2. So the creating of heavens and earth takes place in the seven days. If you make Genesis 1-1 something that's itself a separate creative act, then that, that goes contrary to what the text itself indicates. When you talk about this early in Genesis 2, would you be talking about the verse that talks about that this is the account of the heavens and the earth from the day that they were created, where it has day as singular rather than days as we see in the creation account? Uh, no, I would say in the earlier verses than that, just in, for, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens mm-hmm. and the earth were completed. They were yeah. completed in the seven days. And, uh-huh. and on the seventh day, God finished the work he'd been doing. So this shows us that the heavens and earth are completed in the seven days, not before the seven days started. Mm-hmm. And do you think the order, though, laid out is very specific, that there's a reason why things are given their function in the order that they're given? Um, the Again, I see functions in days one through three. I see functionaries in days four through six. Uh, I don't know yeah. if there's a reason. I haven't identified any particular reason why time comes before weather or weather comes before food. Um, in mm-hmm. that sense, it could be moving down through the realms. I don't know. I haven't identified anything there that I think mm-hmm. would, uh, would help us. But it certainly does indicate why we have uh, time and light in day one and sun, moon, and stars in day four. That's prioritized mm-hmm. because time is the function, and sun, mm-hmm. moon, and stars are the functionaries. So, again, that's not mm-hmm. a material order. Mm-hmm. And that solves a big problem for us. I mean, people through thousands of years have been asking, why do we have the luminaries in day yeah. four when there's light in day one? And yeah. this is a very logical answer to that, that it's functions mm-hmm. and then functionaries. Yeah, it's it's the same problem as younger creationists have often asked older creationists. How is it that you can have plants before the sun shows up in day four? And the older creationists have rightly answered back, like, this is just as much a problem for you are as it is for us. Right. And, and the answer to that solution, as far as I'm concerned, is 
that it's not a material account and therefore not mm-hmm. a material sequence. And mm-hmm. that's, that solves it. Yes. Now, some people would be listening to this and think that it sounds an awful lot like the framework hypothesis, but it, from what I've gathered, you don't think the framework hypothesis really goes far enough in explaining things, do you? That's correct. Framework hypothesis identifies a literary structure mm-hmm. of the chapter, and it says that basically seeing it as, as a literary structure is what kind of resolves all our problems. I'm not out to resolve all our problems. I'm out to understand what the text is doing. And I think it's more than just a literary structure. I believe there is a literary structure, and on that I agree with the framework hypothesis. There is a literary structure, but I wouldn't say, and that's it. That's all there is. It's just a literary structure. I would say beyond that, we have to understand what the text is doing, and the text, in my view, is focusing on operations, order, organization, functions, etc. Now, another criticism I was told also is that you've said that Genesis 1 is kind of a, a temple account, although here you've uh, said it's more of a sacred space account, which I mean, just works as it's where, but I've been told that uh, a lot of these other accounts that are creation that are the non-Christian uh, uh, or the non-Jewish, I'm not sure whatever term we could use besides pagan, so excuse me, I kind of use pagan sometimes as non-Israelite, okay. A lot of these non-Israelite accounts, they might be talking about creation, but they're not really talking about temples anywhere, like such as Inuit, Elish, or accounts like that. So what, what's your response to that? No, actually, you know, Inuit Elish does end its account with a temple building, and then it mm-hmm. uh, gives Marduk's 50 names. So temple is very significant in Inuit Elish. In fact, temple building accounts are often part of cosmologies in the ancient world because once you order it and organize it, then you need a control room to run it. And that's what the temples are. They're the command center, the control room of the cosmos. So temple building and cosmology often go together. You know, when you said that, this really going to think that the whole idea then of Genesis 1 and then in turn the whole idea of a Bible is that God does want this then to be his own command center. He wants this to be the place where his glory is. And all of the, the Bible is about how how to deal with that. You know, in Bart Ehrman, for instance, wrote Burke about the, um, God's problem, why how the Bible doesn't address the greatest question we have of why we suffer. And I look at that and I think, the whole of the Bible is about that problem. It, it, Genesis 1 starts off with, here's, here's the good thing that we have to start. Genesis 2 gives the leeway to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 says, we lost it. That's the Bible. Here's how we get it back. So in essence, your approach then becomes very central to dealing with the so-called problem of evil, doesn't it? Well, it, it can, although problem of evil can be much more philosophical as well. You still, yeah. it's not like it solves all the problems, but it gives us a pathway. Yeah. I mean, Genesis 1 is saying uh, God is in that command center. And by the uh-huh. way, no one else is in that command center. And uh-huh. he has not abdicated. He is in control. And so it says yeah. a lot of important things. You know, the difference between temple and sacred space, temple is just the architectural um, uh, representation of sacred space. 
The most important thing about a temple is sacred space. So in Lost World, when I talked about, you know, the cosmos as a temple, some people, I think, rightly objected and said, but wait a second, if the whole cosmos is a temple, then there's no outside, and that seems not to differentiate well enough. And so I, I tend to talk more now about the idea that it's setting up the cosmos as sacred space. Uh, temple is just the architectural representation of the center of sacred space. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm really following what you mean, like there's no outside. What, what were your critics really saying then? Well, if if the whole cosmos is a temple, then the yeah. question would be, um, well, is there what about a courtyard or an antechamber? After all, not everybody is in the center of the temple. That's where God is. There's got to be some place other than where mm-hmm. God is. Um, you know, those uh, kinds of questions. And uh, so, again, I think it really works better. I mean, the temple idea is still there. But yeah. the the basic idea is that there's sacred space taking place here, mm-hmm. and a temple designates the middle. Genesis 1 doesn't tell you where the middle of sacred space is, where God's presence is located. It's Genesis 2 that tells you that, because the Garden of Eden is at the center of the sacred space. So kind of what you were saying then is that if you were going with that language and you'd be pretty much saying that the non-Israelites all around who weren't holy would be dwelling in a place that was holy just by virtue of living in the cosmos. That's what the critics were thinking, right? Well, yeah, that's that's right. That's part of the distinction they were making. But, of course, sacred space radiates out from a center where God's presence is. So just like yeah. in the tabernacle of the temple, you've got the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred, then the, the antechamber, which is the next most sacred, then the courtyard, yeah. then, out, then you know, in the camp, then outside the camp, all these graduated uh, concentric circles of sacredness. And that, mm-hmm. that's part and parcel with the idea of God establishing his presence in sacred space. And how would that relate to us, Deva, with we say that God dwells, in us today, that we are his sacred space. We are his temple. How would that right. relate to us? Well, again, that talks about the significance and the need for holiness in the church mm-hmm. and in us individually. It talks about the idea yeah. that God's command center and control room is in his people mm-hmm. from where God mm-hmm. is running the cosmos. Um, so it talks about those kinds of things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Greg Beale in his book, the, Temp- the Temple and the Mission of the Church, talks about this idea of expanding sacred space and how we are supposed to be uh, involved in that. And that's the mission of the church, to expand sacred space. Mm. Okay, well, we've got a little over five minutes left, so we're going to start just asking some wrapping up questions. Suppose someone's listening to this and saying, you know, I'm very skeptical, but I want to find out more. What do I do? Um, well, one place where you can get a more extensive treatment um, is that uh, I've I've produced a uh, a DVD that has my teaching materials on it and some yeah. interviews and things of that sort. Uh, those DVDs are available for for free listening and downloading. Uh, they're on the website, uh, a couple websites. They're on biologos.org, um, yeah. and uh, you could get to it there. Uh, they're also on a website called The Third Choice. You'd have to spell mm-hmm. third, three R D, not T H I R D, the third org. 
and just go to the podcast there and you would find it there. So they could get more information there. Um, you can go on uh, YouTube and find a lot of my material around there. You can go to uh, to the BioLogos website, and there's a lot of interviews with me there. So there are various other places where you can get uh, more information of, of my uh, talking about these things. But I would recommend listening to the DVD. Um, again, that can be uh, can be up downloaded from those sites. And for some of my listeners who are skeptical at that point, just because this material is available at BioLogos, it doesn't mean you're in lockstep with BioLogos on everything. That's correct. Uh, BioLogos uh, is an organization that uh, promotes evolutionary creation, and I have not adopted that that position as my own. And your book, for all those interested, it's available on Amazon. You can buy it for twelve eighty, it looks like, and get it on Kindle for nine ninety nine. Is there any other place they can get your book at? Uh, well, certainly at the publisher at University Press, you could get it there, and mm-hmm. um, you know, so that that would be another option. Uh, Christian book distributors, things like that. Mm-hmm. And if they have further questions and they want to find you on the web, where can my audience go to find you on the web? Um, well, mostly to the Wheaton College site. Um, so mm-hmm. I have a I have a page on the Wheaton College website. That's Wheaton.edu, and so mm-hmm. they could they could find that as well. And I, I can tell my listeners that's exactly how I got in touch with you, in order to ask you if you want to do this show. Indeed. Yep. Now we've got about two and a half minutes left here, so. What is the the final message you'd like to give us? If you could leave us with one final thought that you thought was the most important thing you could give, what would it be? Okay. Uh, Really, there are two that I would say. First is, if you feel that my position does not uh, jive with the Bible, stick with the Bible. I'm trying to do my best to read the Bible, but if somebody somebody thinks that if I follow your position, I, I think I'd be going against the Bible, stick with the Bible. Secondly, okay. you can't just think of this in terms of what what your own personal inclinations or beliefs might be. Um, think in terms of, of other people. What if, uh, what if uh, a friend or a son or a daughter decides that they think an old earth position or an evolutionary position or something like that is, is correct? Um, are you going to tell them that, sorry, you're out of the faith, uh, you've rejected the Bible? Some people might, might do that. I'm trying yeah. to say that the Bible's claims don't deal with that. And, and maybe, maybe you won't agree, and that's, that's all right. That's absolutely all right. But think about the church and what the church ought to be and how this all relates to that. Can someone make that decision about old earth or whatever it might be and still do justice to the biblical text? I'm suggesting that they could, and even if I might not be inclined to some of those scientific conclusions, I would have to say I'm going to embrace that person as a brother or sister in Christ, even though they've come to different scientific conclusions than I do. So we have to think beyond ourselves, uh, to think about Mm -hmm. the the church and what there's room for in the church. And in the church, there should be room for any legitimate Bible interpretation, even though everybody can't climb on board with it. Well, Dr. Wharton, I certainly thank you for taking time from your schedule 
come here again. Sorry about the mess up. I hope we didn't lose me listeners that one, but you're welcome here anytime. And maybe you'll even be able to come back and we start talking about the lost world of Scripture, or even right now, the lost world of Adam and Eve. Uh, we'll have to see how things unfold. Okay, thank you. I'm Nick Peters, and you're signing off from today's show. And next week, Mike Lacona. <laughs>